Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. I know that we are right in the heart of vacation season. My wife tells me that we're going to go on a vacation, but then when she told me where we were going, I said, uh, I thought we were going on vacation. And, you know, when you take five children with you, it, it ceases to be a vacation. You know, family vacation is like an oxymoron. I mean, there's no, there's no such thing. We, we went to, uh, this is back just when we had three, and, and we went to uh, Orlando, then we ended up going to, to Disney World, and uh, of course, it's 5,000 degrees there, and you guys know how I sweat, you know. And, uh, you know, we, we had all these appointments, you know, scheduled, you know. It was all three of the girls. And so we're running from this place to this place, and there's lines everywhere, and we've got children passing out, and, you know, they're, they're, they're getting sick to their stomach. And, and Rachel's like, come on, get up, let's go. Let's, let's, let's go. I said, they're having a heat stroke right here. We need to call the doctor or somebody. No, we got a dinner date with the princess, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? And then, of course, you think they're going to have a good time until they see the characters for the first time. You know, they, they look at these characters, and, and I remember when, when Bella, we arrived here, and when Bella saw, uh, I think it was Goofy for the first time, all of a sudden she went. She didn't move. She like, man, that dude is big. I mean, I know what's going through her mind. And so Goofy's trying to be all nice, you know, and go like this, and she's like, then she stuck her head up to it. Hold up. And then I know he, you know, he was just trying to be friendly, so he's kind of going like this. And in her mind, she's going, you take one more step, and I am going to scream to the top of my lungs. So she takes, or the Goofy takes one step, and she loses her mind. Happiest place in the world, though. <laughs> that is a lie. That is a lie. But anyways... Um, if you got your Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and turn over to the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 7. Um, there is no uh, da- uh, daring stewardship class after service today. Shannon sent me a text and said that the water was, uh, was shut off in Williamsburg, so they couldn't properly prepare for service. And I said, you know what? How many baths do you need to take a week? I said, listen, I take one a week whether I need to or not. But, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't able to... Uh, to, to get ready, uh, continue to pray for Bob Gray. They're going to uh, try and put the dialysis port in him. They had to transfer him over to uh, St. Joe's uh, East in Lexington. Uh, he was dealing with some other things that, uh, um, that, that was going on, so he's there, and hopefully tomorrow that'll happen, and uh, he'll be able to get home. He's been in the hospital over two weeks now, so uh, I know he's ready to get home, but uh, just keep him in your prayers. Uh, Matthew chapter number 7 we started a new sermon series last week called Hell's Best Kept Secrets. And I understand that a lot of the stuff that we shared was, was, was very challenging. Uh, theologically, maybe for some folks, I also know that uh, you know, it, it's, it's very confrontational. Uh, I know that it requires you to do some, some soul searching. But I want you to know the, the purpose and the meaning behind, of sharing, behind sharing these things uh, is just because your eternal destiny is important enough to evaluate where you stand with God. And, you know, if the statistics that uh, Christian research groups uh, uh, release and, and put out are true, then, then we have a very, very sick church in, in America. I shared a few of those with you last week. I talked about 
how that uh, over 70% of Americans consider themselves to be born-again Christians. And, uh, you know, of those 70% uh, of, of the people that consider themselves to be a Christian, uh, you know, less than 3% actually have a biblical worldview. 66% do not believe in moral absolutes, meaning that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth might mean something to you, and truth might mean something completely different for somebody else. And, you know, I, I shared with you how that um, you know, 33%... Uh, or less than 33% actually believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God. And, you know, uh, the truth is across America, we have a biblically illiterate church. And what I mean by that is not that we have illiterate people, it's just that we have people that do not read their Bible and do not know what the Bible says. So, you know, when, 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 you, when you add up all of that stuff and you really research it and, and look at it, you know, it makes me want to, to search inwardly and find out, well, you know, what do I believe? It's important to know what you believe, why you believe it, and how you live in. Because if heaven and hell are real places and people literally go there, then it matters what you believe. Not just what you believe, it matters how you live. Jesus said over and over in the, in the Gospels, He said, Be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. And the truth is, you only believe what you live. And we're going to look at some of that stuff. And then last week we talked about uh, four of, the, uh, of hell's best kept secrets. And, and the first one we talked about was our motive and how that we have to have the right motive if we're going to come to Jesus for truly, truly to be saved. And I give you some examples of people that were following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Uh, th then we talked about the purpose of God's law. And, and I spent more time on that than, than any of the other points because, you know, we, we live in the birthplace of legalism. And what I mean by that is that we, we are, are, are in an area that is extremely religious but biblically illiterate. That's, I mean, that's just true. We, 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 we think that we, it is possible for us to live uh, holy lives apart from what Jesus did for us on the cross. We can't live good enough. One of the, one of the statements that I hear over and over again, the reason why people uh, don't want to give their life to Jesus is because they say, you know, and I was one of those people that says, you know, you know it's too hard to live the Christian life. And the, and the truth is, that's almost true. You're all, when, you, when you recognize that, that the, living the Christian life is not just hard but impossible, you're there. And the purpose of the law is to show us that you cannot live the Christian life. And then it points us to the cross and shows us what Jesus done for us so that he can make, uh, uh, make corrections and make things right so that we can live the Christian life by his grace in him and through him. And then we talked about the, the purpose of, of man's conscience and how that God wrote the, the laws and the commandments uh, in, in the hearts of men. So every time that we commit sin, we, we know and understand that, is, that we are sinning and we're sinning against God. And then we talked about true repentance. Well, today or this week, we're going to talk about uh, true converts. And then next week, we're going to talk about false converts. How do we know that we as individuals are truly been born again and that we have been changed. What, 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 do we, what can we evaluate our Christian experience and come to the point and say, yes, I'm truly born again? Because here's the truth. 
When I went to Indonesia, this was back several years ago, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. It's an Islamic republic. It is illegal to convert a Muslim to Christ, okay? Extremely persecuted area. And, you know, we, we arrive at Singapore Airport. And while you're there, they have these big screens. And up on the screen it says, 76 Christians killed in Christian, Christian Muslim conflict. And then you look down at your boarding pass. And then you go. Hmm. It just got real right here. Because they're not playing there, okay? They kill people for real. And they, there's 76 Christians killed in this conflict before you go, okay? And then Rick Clendenin, who I was going with, says to me, if you want to stay here in Singapore while I go in, I do this, uh, this graduation here, this ordination service, he said, you can stay here, and then I'll go do this, and I'll come back, and we don't have to tell anybody that you didn't go unless they ask. And so I had to say to myself, I said, well, you know what? It'd been good to know that up front before I came. But reality was I knew that. I knew that. I know. And, and you know what? We, we read about this. You know, over 156,000 people are martyred for Christ every single year. 156,000. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. And so, I mean, I knew that was a possibility going into it. But it's different when you're looking into the face of it. So I said, I didn't come this far to, to stay at the airport. So I get on the airplane, and God is my witness. This is what happened. This is the process that I'm going through, all right? The first, I asked myself two questions. The first question I asked myself is this. Am I really saved? Now, I'm supposed to be a missionary, right? I mean, I'm here to share, you know, share the gospel, to preach the gospel around the world, to go make disciples and preach, you know, go everywhere. You know, I'm asking if I'm saved. Why? Because it could possibly cost me my life. And I believe what the Bible says about heaven and hell. I believe those are literal places. I believe there's, those are eternal places. I be, literally believe people go there. So I ask myself, do I believe Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes. Do I believe that he lived a sinless life? Yes. Do I believe that he died on the cross for my sin? Yes. Do I believe that he was dead and, uh, for three days and then was raised from the dead on the third day? Yes. Do I believe this? Is there evidence in my life that I believe this? And I come to the conclusion that yes. And I checked myself. I went, check. Yep. Worst case scenario, if they kill me, I'm going to go to heaven and you can't threaten me with heaven, right? You can't threaten somebody with heaven. Now, the second question I didn't necessarily have an answer for. The second question was, did God tell me to come over here or did my fool self just buy a ticket and try to be some kind of spiritual hero to show that I've got guts, blah, 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 blah. And you know, I didn't have an answer for that one because I'm not scared of what the devil can do to me, but I am terrified of the kind of foolishness that I can get myself into. Listen, I've got a lot of scars on my head. All of them or the majority of them are self-inflicted. The great theologian John Wayne said, life's tough. It's even tougher when you're stupid. That's the story of my life. So, but my point in sharing that is, that is that sooner or later, all of us are going to be faced with that same reality. And that is, it's appointed once for a man to die, and then after that comes the judgment. And when you stand before God, are you going to be saved? 
or lost? Is he going to say enter in or is he going to say depart from me? Are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? You have to settle that question now. And I'm concerned that there's a lot of people that think that things are settled when in reality their eternal destiny is still weighing in the balance. So, Matthew chapter number 7, we're going to read verse 17 through 20. If you're there, say amen. Jesus speaking here, he says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Let's pray. Father, today I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, that the Spirit of God is here. I thank you for the people of God. I ask, Lord, that you help me to communicate with clarity and simplicity, but with the anointing and the authority of the Holy Spirit to to, to speak to the hearts of every person that's here. I pray that you give us clarity of where we stand with you. If there's somebody here whose eternal destiny is not settled, that's not right with you, that possibly could be uh, walking in some kind of deception, I pray, God, that you make clear to all of us where we stand and help us to draw and become closer to you. I pray, Lord, that you bless your word. Let it bring forth fruit a hundredfold. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, the Bible's full of examples of people who profess to be believers, but in reality, they're false converts. Jesus talked about this group of people in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. He said, this people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, and in their hearts they are far from me. Titus wrote in Titus chapter number 1 verse 16 that there would be a group of people that would profess to know God, but in their works they would deny Him. Timothy and uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that there'd be a group of people that would have a form of godliness but they would deny the power thereof. In other words, they look very religious externally, but inwardly they are void of any kind of life-changing power that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of the believer. Then the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, that there's a generation of people who believe that they're pure in their own eyes, but yet they've not been washed from their filthiness. But I can think of nothing more terrifying than the words of Jesus himself that he spoke and are recorded in this same chapter in verses 21 through 23. And Jesus speaks these words. He says, Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. For many, now notice the emphasis here, many, not a few, Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Now notice, it didn't say that I, at one time I knew you. Depart from me at one time I knew you. It says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Obviously, the group of people he's talking about are religious people. 
Obviously, they're church-going kind of people, right? Obviously, they're a group of people that are involved doing things in church, possibly involved in ministry, serving. Listen, they're casting out demons according to Scripture. They're, they're working miracles according to Scripture. They're prophesying according to Scripture. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. They had a false sense of security that things were right between them and God. These people believed that they were genuine converts, but in reality, they were false converts. Now, you would think that if what the Scripture is saying here is true, you would think if, if what Jesus is saying is true, that it would cause people to want to examine themselves, examine their relationship with God, examine the state and the condition of their soul to the point that they would want to know who are those that are false converts and number two, am I one of them? You know, have I genuinely experienced a born-again experience? Have I been saved? Am I saved? Do I really and truly know Jesus? Now, I don't want to be one of those people that Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to spend all of my life in church. I don't want to spend all of my time doing ministry. Listen, I'm convinced there's a lot of preachers that will stand before God and they'll hear those same words. There's a lot of people that sing that are going to, you know, stand before Jesus, hear those same words, depart from me, I never knew you. Because salvation has nothing to do with your involvement in church. Salvation has nothing to do with your involvement in ministry. Salvation has nothing to do with whether you sing or whether you preach, whether you get baptized or whether you don't. Because you can go under the baptismal water, a dry center, and you can come up out of the baptismal water, a wet center. Because those things don't save you at all. But some people, they want to dismiss any idea that this warning might apply to their lives. You know why? Because they believe that they know who Jesus is. They, by mentally acknowledging that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they believe all of the doctrinal facts and truths about Jesus, that they think that things are right between them and God. James said this, he said, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Now let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a demon to be saved? Absolutely not. So demons have some of the best Christology uh, that, that, that anybody could ever possibly have. When you saw Jesus walking around on the earth, people could not figure out who he was. The demons got who he was right every single time. The demons would cry out, I know who you are. We know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Demons believe everything doctrinally correct that we are supposed to believe doctrinally correct, but yet they are not saved. You believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I want you to know something. Believing just in doctrine only without or void of an experience, a life-changing experience with the person of Jesus Christ makes you no difference than the demons that believe and tremble. But yet in America, we, we, we think that believing means to mentally acknowledge that we know who Jesus is. 
It's not enough just to mentally acknowledge that. So how do you know whether your faith is genuine? How do you know whether you are truly born again? Jesus gives us a clear statement here and says, this is how you know that you've truly been born again. You shall know them by the what? The fruit that they bear. Now, the Apostle James basically says the same thing. And throw that slide up there for me if you don't care. Listen to what James says here in James chapter 2, verses 14 and then verse 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone notice what they do? If someone says. In other words, if someone just gives lip service, says that they have faith, but they do not have works. Notice what he said. Now, you want to talk about a controversial preacher. You want to talk about somebody that gets up in your face, points his finger in your face and says, can such faith save you? Just because you say it? Just because you say you believe in Jesus? Just because you give lip service to it? Just because you, can such faith save you? Now look what else he goes on to say. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he sums it all together in verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now let me explain this to you. I want to be perfectly clear. James is not saying, nor am I saying, that we are saved by works. I'm not saying that. James is talking about saving faith and how you can tell whether you have saving faith or whether you don't. He's saying there is evidence that a person has saving faith. And he said the evidence or the fruit that someone has saving faith is that there are works that correspond with what they say they believe. In other words, it affects the way that they live. It affects the way that, that they behave. So if a man says that he has faith, but he doesn't have worth, can such faith save him? So what James is saying here is the same thing that Jesus is saying here. Listen to this. Faith in the heart is visible by the fruit in our lives. If you have faith in your heart, it will be visible by the fruit that is in your life. In other words, what you possess on the inside, you will produce on the outside. We know faith is present because fruit is present. Are, are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? We know that what you believe is true and real because it affects the way that you live your life. It affects the way that you make decisions. It affects the way that you say yes to some things and no to other things. It, it, it affects the way that you serve or whether you don't serve. It affects everything that you do because Jesus didn't come to be part of your life. Jesus come to be all of your life, and he sure never died on the cross so he could give you a bigger, better version of who you are. Remember last week we talked about the gospel of life enhancement. You know, Jesus did not die on the cross that you can live the American dream. 
The problem is most people feel like that they can live for Jesus and live for themselves at the same time, and that's just not true. We want Jesus. We want God. We want heaven. We want the church. We want all these things. We just want them on our terms. And you can tell just how big of a hold that the world has on us when we refuse to obey what the Scripture teaches us to obey because it becomes an inconvenience to our lives. Are you with me? So James is talking basically about the same thing. So Jesus said, you'll know them by the fruit that they bear. Now let me give you five characteristics of the t- or the type of fruit of a true convert. So what kind of fruit do we look for? Now this, these things are in your outline here. The first one's this. You can go ahead. Number one, the first fruit that is evident in a genuine believer's life is the fruit of repentance. Now, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, what is the fruit of repentance? True repentance definitely includes being sorrowful for the sins that you've committed. Okay? But true repentance is so much more than just the feeling of sorrow over sin or sins that you've committed. True repentance goes beyond those feelings and it is reflected by the change that we make in our lives. True repentance is when we change, not when we cry. Now, true repentance may include tears, but if tears is all you have and there's no genuine change or no genuine desire to change, then you've not experienced true repentance. Not only does true repentance, not only is it a reflection of the change that we make in our lives by the grace of God, true repentance also seeks to right anybody and anything that they've done wrong. In other words, there is a corresponding action to genuine repentance. Are, are, you, are you understand what I'm saying? When you repent, there is a desire to make things right with those that you have done things wrong to, with God and with others. Now, let me give you a good example of that. It's in Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus is a perfect example of somebody that has experienced genuine repentance. Now, look what it says here. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give up half of my goods to the poor, And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. You know, here we see the fruits of repentance by the actions that Zacchaeus is taking. You understand what I'm saying? Zacchaeus is not just, you know, verbalizing or repeating a sinner's prayer. His heart has been changed. How do I know that? Because the the, the proof of a changed heart is a changed life. He's not only recognized how the Lord has forgiven him and how he did not deserve to be forgiven, he recognized that he's done people wrong in his life and therefore he wants to take responsibility for what he's done and then he wants to do his best to go make things right. Now that happened to me in my life when I got saved. It never entered my mind before I got saved, but after I got saved, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was radically changed. And, you know, I had a bad habit of keeping uh, uh, movies that I rented from different places here in, in town much longer than what I should. Months, years. And now, even though that doesn't sound like a bad 
bad, terrible thing, it weighed heavy on my conscience. And, you know, I said, you know what I've done? I take advantage of the, uh, took advantage of these people. These people are just trying to make a living, and they can't even make a living because I'm stealing from them. So you know what I did? I was terrified to go because I felt like, you know, I figured that, you know, my, my, my late fee is probably going to be $1.6 million and some change. And so I go up to these people, and I went to multiple movie rental stores, okay? And I went to the first one, and I said, I'm bringing your movie back, and I want you to know something. I give my life to Jesus, and I have been changed, and I want to first of all say that I'm extremely sorry for taking advantage of your friendship and your kindness, and I've kept these movies out for a long time. I have no clue how much money I owe you. I'm sure that I don't have what it's going to require for me to pay you right now, but I'm making the commitment to you that no matter how long it takes me to repay you, I'm going to do that. So when I share that to them, it's kind of like Fred Sanford, you know, on Sanford and Son. They're like, Well, they thought that was the weirdest thing on the face of the earth. Like, what in the world is wrong with this dude? Well, I got saved. And guess what they did? They just wiped it clean. So I went to the next one. But I was genuinely sorrowful. I told them, I said, you know what? All you've tried to do is make a living and support your family. And I have kept you from being able to do that. Please forgive me. So I went to the next one. You know what? They wiped it clean. Then I went to the next one. And I told them, same story, same story. And, and only one of them, they ended up ch- uh, charging me 25 bucks. And you know what? When I gave them that 25 bucks, let me tell you something, that felt so good. Because the, the truth is this, I wanted to right my wrongs. I wanted not only to take responsibility for what I'd done, I never wanted to do that again, and I wanted to repay and make things right And that is the proof. That's the fruit of genuine repentance. Nobody told me to do that. That was just what was on my heart. And not only did I do that with movies, I went to multiple relationships that I had with people that I had taken advantage of because when you're a drug addict and alcoholic, you do people bad. And you have to apologize and you have to ask for forgiveness. And, you know, everyone, there's something that is extremely supernatural and powerful when you come with humility and you have had brokenness and sorrow, and, and you say, I am sorry, you take responsibility for yourself, something happens between you and that person, you and that situation, you and God, things change just like that. Amen? So that's, that's, that's the first fruit, the fruit of repentance. Here's the second fruit, number two. The second fruit is the fruit of good works. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world and that you were ordained toward good works that you may walk in them. 
It says in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, listen to this. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly. That Notice, those that believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Need another verse? Good works are fruit. Jesus said that a good tree can't bring forth bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bring forth good fruit. He said, by fruit you shall know them. Fruit is a big deal. And so what we see here is that fruit is being emphasized as proof, as evidence that you are committed and a child of God. Now listen to me. Faith that saves, faith that works, faith that is alive and not dead. True faith doesn't just believe, true faith obeys. You say you have faith. You say, you, you open up your mouth and you say you have faith, but you don't have works. Can such faith save you? For faith without works is not saving faith. So there is a faith that doesn't save. But then there is a faith that does save. And what is the faith that does save? Faith that works. Faith that is alive and not dead. Faith that has corresponding action, faith that obeys. Now listen to me. Good works are not a means to salvation. In other words, your good works don't save you, okay? You're not saved by good works. You are saved for good works. The fact that you're doing good works is fruit that you have truly been born again. And God said, this is my will for your life, that you walk in these good works. Good works are not a means to salvation. Do I have that up there? Listen. True faith is believed that it obeys. Good works are the visible fruit in the life of a person who's been truly saved. In other words, when you have truly been saved, the, the natural... Thing that is that is reproduced in our life is good works. Good works are the visible fruit of in the life of the person that's been truly saved. Good works are not man's attempt to be made right with God. Good works are the natural is naturally produced as a result of putting our faith in God. In other words, when you've truly put your faith in God, good works follow, and that's fruit. That's fruit. So we have the fruit of repentance, the fruit of good works. Here's here's the third one. The fruit of thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. I don't think that I really need to spend a whole lot of time explaining what this one is. But the truth is, worship and praise and thanksgiving is the natural response that comes from a person who is filled with gratitude for what Jesus has done for them. 
Let me say that again. Worship, praise, and thanksgiving is the natural response of a person whose heart is filled with gratitude for what Jesus has done for them. Listen, if there is no gratitude in your heart, you're probably not saved. Man, I know that's hard. If it's not coming out of your mouth, I mean, I, I don't understand where all of this, this complaining and, and being critical and negative, and I'm not saying when you're going through hard times you can't express that, but when I'm saying when the only thing that comes out of your mouth is negativity, criticism, you know, harshness, when, when, when nothing good. Listen, if the Lord doesn't do another thing for me, the fact that he saved me after all I had done against him, the fact that he saved me, he's already done enough. If things never get better, if I don't ever get brought out of the situation that I'm in, if God doesn't part the waters, if he doesn't move on my behalf, he doesn't have to. He's already done enough for me. I'm thankful for that. But if nothing comes out of our mouth, if we have no gratitude, if we have no thanksgiving, if we, if we have nothing coming out, if we're not testifying of the goodness of God ever, probably a pretty good indication that we're not saved. Why? Because it talked about the fruit of thanksgiving. It'll come out of your mouth. Here's the fourth thing, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Now, here's the point I want to make on this, because I know Clay's already done a message on the fruit of the Spirit. But here's what I want to emphasize, and that is, just like in the natural, fruits and vegetables are the result of an ongoing process of growing and cultivating between the gardener and the garden. Fruits and vegetables are the result of an ongoing process of growing and cultivating between the garden and the gardener. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of an ongoing process between the Holy Spirit and us. In other words, the more that we know God, only the Holy Spirit can produce those things. The fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit cannot be counterfeit. You understand what I'm saying? The devil has a counterfeit for everything except the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because of the fruit of the Spirit. And so, if you have these fruit operating in your life, it's a pretty good indicator that you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because these only come from the person of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me on that? So again, I'm just giving you some things, and I'm just teaching this morning. So I want you to get this. I want you to settle the issue once and for all, so you don't have to question and doubt. But if you're not right with God... You're going to be clearly understand what you need to do to be made right with God, okay? Now, here's the last thing. The last thing is this, and that is the fruit of righteousness. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11 says, Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, listen. The fruit of righteousness has to do with Learning how to resist sin 
and learning how to walk in sanctification and holiness. Now, I know nobody wants to talk about that at all, right? But the Bible says this is the will of God for you, that each man know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, when you get saved, you are sanctified in the eyes of God. But sanctification is both instantaneous and progressive. First of all, God sanctifies you. And second of all, He continues to sanctify you till you see the manifestation of that sanctification in your life. I'm going to explain that to you right quick. But listen, there's a difference between the gift of righteousness and the fruit of righteousness. Now, this is good right here, okay? You might be bored, but hang on, it's going to get gooder. There's a difference between the gift of righteousness and the fruit of righteousness. I think we've got a slide up here. First of all, let's look at the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness, or righteousness means right standing with God. Now, how are you made in right standing with God? Well, we learned last week that it is absolutely impossible for a man or a woman to be made right with God by human effort or by keeping the law. Got it? And that was the purpose of the whole point last week, is to show you the impossibility of you being able to live a life that is worthy enough to go to heaven in your own strength. You can't do it. Because here's the truth. When you love Jesus and you are not fully sanctified, you are going to commit sin along the way. But committing one sin doesn't mean you lose your salvation because you've done something wrong. Because I know that there's some people that are here. I was one of those people. That I believed at one time, because I didn't know what the Bible said, I believed at one time that I could be saved today, I could be driving down the road, have an ungodly thought pop in my mind, and if I don't repent of that thought, if I go around the curve and hit somebody head on, and I died in the car wreck, I believed, I believed that I would split hell wide open. Let me tell you something, that is a miserable existence. That is legalism to the umpteenth power. And it did not add one positive thing to my life. I wanted to live for Jesus. And I felt like his expectation of me was to be morally perfect in thought, word, and deed. That's what I thought. That's what I expected. That, that, that's what I thought he expected of me, which was totally impossible. But I thought that the way that I got right with God is I, I recognize what Jesus did on the cross for me. I repent of my sins. I get forgiveness. But then I have to prove it by the way I live my life. Well, I tried to do that, but I fail again. So does that mean that I lose my salvation? Or does that mean that I'm still saved? What does that mean? I live my life that way. I didn't understand the gift of righteousness. Now listen to what it says here in Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. What does that mean? That means you're not going to be able to live good enough to be forgiven 
and be righteous before God. So your righteousness, as the Bible says, is 50 rags. So you might as well throw that out the door. But when I come to the point to where I realize that my righteousness was that, it actually set me free. When I realized that I was a big pile of whatever you want to call it, but he loved me anyways, died for me anyways, made me right with him anyways, not because of me, but in spite of me, not only did it make me feel better about myself, it made me want to love him more. Because he didn't give me what I deserved, he gave me what I didn't deserve. But he will give you what you deserve if you think you're good enough to be made right with God apart from faith in Jesus. And you'll find out that you've fallen short. So this, this is the gift of righteousness. But how are you made right with God? You know, how is a person made right with God? Listen, 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. You're not made right with God because you're a good person. Matter of fact, Jesus did not die on the cross to make bad people good. Jesus died on the cross to make dead people live. Okay? That's not what, he didn't die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people live. So you're not good by being a good person. Because the Bible says there is none that good, that's good. I mean, I think that settles it. So when you think that you're a good person, and even though you've not repented of your sins, but you think you're a better person than the other person, you know, in reality it's irrelevant because God already says you're not good. The law is given to show us that we are not good and God is good. Because God is good, and this is the standard that he wants us to live our life by, it only reveals just how bad we really are and why we need him. You're not made right with God because you come to church. You're not made right with God because you read 10 chapters of your Bible every day or because you don't cuss or chew or hang out with people that do. You're not made right by any of those things. You are made right with God based solely on what Jesus has done for you and I on the cross, period. A, a simple math equation for understanding salvation is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can't accept Jesus and his death on the cross and add one thing to it and it give you salvation. Isn't that good? They go ahead and come to music. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Now listen to this. When your righteousness is found in what he's done for you, because he did something for you and I that we couldn't do for ourselves. Not only are you made righteous with God, you are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not what you do, it's who you are in, your, in, in, in His eyes. Righteousness is how He sees you in the fullness and perfection that he originally created you in in the first place. 
even though you're not there yet. He sees you for everything that you're going to be, not what you are, whether you feel like it or not. Don't let that go over your head and listen to this. Romans 5, 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one. When Adam sinned, all of us became sinners, all of us die. Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, listen to this, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. You know what the word reign means in, in the Greek? Listen to this. To rule from a foundation of power. And Paul says, you will reign in this life. In other words, the reason that you can walk in victory over sin is because of the righteousness of God causes you to reign from the foundation of power and you're able to overcome what you could not overcome before. The reason you can walk free from sin, now that doesn't mean that you won't sin, but I believe if we follow the Holy Spirit every single moment of the day, that it's possible to live sinless. The problem is we don't always follow the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. Because the Holy Spirit will never lead us into sin, will He? Right? So the closer we walk with the Holy Spirit, the less we'll sin along the way. Now that's how we reign over sin. Not only that, the way that we walk in holiness and sanctification is the position that we hold in the eyes of God. Because listen, all sin is, is our dissatisfaction with God. When you are fully satisfied with God, sin and temptation and ungodliness and worldly lust and all the pleasures of life have no power over you. They can't even compare to who Jesus is. If the Lord just touches you with just a drop of his love and it touches your heart, you're ruined for life. You'll never be the same. June the 7th, 1998, was a day that my life was changed forever. He ruined me. Then I only experienced a drop. But if you are in bondage to sin, if you're not walking in godliness and holiness and sanctification, or you're struggling with something, I want you to know that's not God's will for your life. You're the righteousness of God. Well, I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm a horrible human being. Well, in your flesh, yeah. But that's not the way that God sees you. He that knew no sin became sin so he could take yours away. You're not who you used to be. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You're a new creature. You have a new identity. You have a new destiny. You're different. God doesn't take the old you and mix it together with the new you and say, let's have fun. He, he doesn't ask you to turn over a new leaf. He said, I come to give you a new life. He said he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. God's not reminding you of what you've done. He's trying to remind you of who you are. And you need to forget the things 
the former things and reach forward to those things which are ahead. But the problem is we tend to remember the things that we should forget and forget the things that we should remember. You're not, this is a big thing, at some point in your life, if you're going to really be truly free and walk in what God intends for you to walk in, you're going to have to learn how to separate who you are from what you've done. And what you've done has been such a part of your life, you've accepted that as your identity, and you've spoke things like this, I'm always going to be this way. Or I've been here before, I take two steps forward, I take three steps back. It's simply because you don't recognize the gift of righteousness that God has given you. It's just because you're not looking to the one that will cause you to reign in this life from a foundation of power. You can overcome anything that you're dealing with. That's the gift of righteousness. And here's the last thing, the fruit of righteousness. Once you recognize you've been made righteous with God, but, but not necessarily walking in the righteousness or the fruit of righteousness, what do you do? Here's what Paul says to do. Romans 12, or 6, 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, Awaken to righteousness and do not sin. Listen. Right standing always precedes right living. You can't live right if you don't understand right standing. If you still think that you are who you used to be, even though you're born again, you'll never be able to live right. You'll never be able to overcome sin. You'll never be able to overcome those temptations. You'll never be free from those strongholds. You'll never experience the freedom that Jesus died to give you because you don't understand your right standing. You are trying to do it in your own strength. Through self-discipline, you're trying to come out of it. Through just mere human willpower, you're trying to get free from it. You don't understand who the sun sets free is free indeed. That's where you stand. And a Christian, when you understand your right standing with God, you don't fight for victory, you fight from victory. You only enforce the victory Jesus has already provided you. I'm preaching better than your amen. I absolutely love this. The fruit of righteousness is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to conform us into what God already sees us to be. The fruit of righteousness is the work of the Holy Spirit in us conforming us into what God already sees us to be. Have you ever thought for a moment? Because we know it's our destiny. The Bible says that 
we've been preordained to be conforming to the image of the Son of God. Have you ever thought for a moment that God already envisioned you and sees you in a way that you've never seen yourself that is far greater than anything you could think or ask? You ever thought for a moment that even in your struggle, God looks past your struggle and says, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You're better than that. You're bigger than that. It's not going to take you out. It's not going to defeat you. That's not your destiny. You're not destined to die in the wilderness. There's so much more. There's something greater that I have for you. I see you in what I intended you to be from the beginning. Now, you're not seeing it in your own life, but I'm going to continue to work that out until you become everything I created you to be. It had a beautiful thing. Now, I feel like you can stand with me. So many of you, you're here and you struggle with self-value, with low self-esteem. You've allowed yourself to be labeled by your mistakes and your failures and your disappointments of the past. You hear messages like this and you think it's too good to be true. This might be true for somebody else, but there's no way God could do this for me. I believe God wants to do something in your life. And let me address the people, those of you that are here, that you're struggling to know if you're truly saved or you're struggling because you feel like you've got to get saved every single week. I know what it's like to feel that way. Because I I based my salvation on my ability to do good. And not God's ability to do good through me. Now I gave you five fruits to be able to examine your life by. But let me just ask you this. Here's some practical things. Number one, do you experience conviction when you sin if you experience conviction when you sin that's a pretty good indicator the Holy Spirit dwells in you because before you were saved you could do all the things that you wanted to do and never feel bad about it right so if you feel bad when you let God down or when you do something wrong or or you know that what you're doing is wrong pretty good indicator that the Holy Spirit's in you right Here's another simple thing. Do you desire to do what is pleasing to God? Do you really want to please God? Because here's the thing. I can guarantee you before you got saved, you had no desire whatsoever to live a life that's pleasing to God. The fact that you want to please God is proof that God's living in you. Now, how do I know that's true? Now, listen to me. I'm wrapping it up. We're getting out earlier than normal. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 gives us an idea of the process of the Christian life. He says this. It is God that works in you. What's God doing? He's working in you. To give you the desire and the power to do what's pleasing to Him. Now what's God's job? To put it in you. To work in you the desire to do what is good and pleasing to Him. Now, the next verse says this. Now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the Christian life is God working something in and you working something out. So the proof that you're really saved is inside you is a desire to do what's pleasing to God that was not there before you got saved. Now whether you do what's pleasing to God is irrelevant at this point because you have to settle in your mind that God is in me, I'm saved, and He's going to continue to put that desire in me. Now I just need to respond the right way through the help of the Holy Spirit in order to do what's pleasing to God. And the last thing is this. Do you genuinely have a love for people? That was one of the most amazing things for me because I, I really didn't love people. I loved using people. I loved seeing what I could get from people, but I didn't really love people. But after I got saved, I had a genuine love for people. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, verse 14, it says, This is how we know we've passed from death unto life, that we love the brethren. There's something supernatural in love that's birthed in your heart by God Himself. So let's just bow our heads for a moment. Father, I pray, God, that you just speak to all of us here today. I've shared your word the best that I know how. And I recognize there's nothing I can do to change anybody, save anybody, set anybody free. There's nothing that I can do. The Holy Spirit, you can do all things. So I pray that you speak to us where we are, Lord, and help us to respond appropriately. So let me just ask you, do you have faith that saves? Or do you have faith that does not save? How do you know that? Well, faith that saves is more than lip service. If all you do is talk the talk, but you never walk the walk, probably a pretty good indicator that things are not there. I'm not saying that you do it perfectly. I'm just saying that you read the Word of God, you act out upon the Word of God because you believe the Word of God. That's true faith. The rest of the stuff that we have is just simply lip service. If you're here this morning and you know for sure that if you were to die today, that you're not right with God and that you would go to hell and that concerns you and you want to make things right with God on the count of three I just want you to lift up your hand and say that's me I'm not coming out there after you I'm not going to ask you to come forward I'm not going to point you out I just want to know that God's dealing with you I'm going to pray for you on the count of three just lift your hand one, two, three
how many of you fit in the category that I said in the beginning? And that is, you've not been able to see yourself the way God sees you, but you've allowed yourself to be labeled by the disappointments and mistakes and things of the past. Would you just shoot your hand up and say that to me? I don't feel worthy. I struggle with unworthiness. I struggle with a lack of self-esteem. I struggle with just feeling like God loves me. Amen. Father, I ask you right now, by the power of your Spirit, that you would move and that you would pour your love into the hearts of those that lifted their hands that are struggling with just feeling like they have value and worth and and, and no self-esteem. And I pray that you would reveal to them the gift of righteousness that you've given us. Lord, you are, you've created them to be more than what they are. They're not what they used to do. They're, they're not what they used to be. Lord, they're not everything they're going to be, but they're not what they used to be. And Lord, I know that what you have in store for them is far greater than what they've experienced now. So I pray, God, right now that you minister to them and that you would touch them in Jesus' name. If you like personal prayer, if there's something specific you like prayer over when they're going to sing a song and invite you to come forward we'd love to pray with you